was interesting. I was listening to a radio program, and somebody was being interviewed, and they were talking about schedules and how oftentimes the schedules in our life really control us. You know, sometimes when we're really busy, we make schedules to do different things. But this person, as they were being interviewed, had a very different take on schedules. And they said, make your schedule so that the schedule helps you become the person you want to be. I thought, well, that's really interesting. Rather than just trying to fit in all the important things I need to do, who do I want to be? What do I want to know about scripture? And, and to make my schedule so that if I live that schedule, I will become like that person. And as I was thinking about that, came across something else where somebody was saying, if you read a half an hour a day, someone said an hour a day, but let's say a half an hour a day. If you read a half an hour a day on any topic for a couple of years, you'll become an expert in that field. So if you want to read about... Um, physics and you start reading half an hour a day, you know, in a couple of years, you'll be an expert in that field. Of course, there's a caveat to that. Certain things you're not going to learn simply by reading. You can read about swimming, and after three years of reading about it, you're really not going to be a very good swimmer unless you get in the water. But if you really want to get better at something, there needs to be intentionality about how we live our life. In fact, some people that really want to get better, I uh, was at the pool the other week and met Seth there and a couple of his friends. And what was really intriguing to me is Seth brought, Seth's not here, is he? He brought his GoPro camera with him and put it up at the end of the swimming pool so that he could film himself on a couple of laps for what purpose? To improve. He's not just being vain about it. He wants to see how he's swimming so that he can improve his strokes. Do we really want to grow as Christians? Do we really want that kind of feedback where we're becoming more like Jesus? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, the scripture reading we looked at. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, where... Peter really focuses on some very important aspects of life, and we need to think and we need to experience kind of a self-examination and encounter with the Word of God that reveals to us, are we really becoming molded into the image of Christ? 1 Peter chapter 2 is a great passage, starting in verse 22. It's kind of a qualification here. Since you have... In obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere, Greek would mean unhypocritical, love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. Thank you. You know what I love about making mistakes in public? It's just like... Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 and 25. 1 uh, Peter chapter 1, 22 and 25. Thank you, Belinda. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again. How? 
not with a seed, negative birth, which is perishable, not just a physical birth, but we've had a birth that comes from an imperishable seed that is through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God has power, transformative power, to make major changes in our life. Do you believe that? And so, if I go back to my first thing, you know, if we read a half an hour a day, we become experts in something. So, many of us have been reading the scripture for more than a half an hour a day for a really long time. Are we really loving the way this passage is calling us to? Or is there some kind of a disconnect that happens? It's not just the reading. It is the reading, but it's also the work of the Holy Spirit, and there needs to be an application to the life. And that's what Peter brings out to us, that the Word of God can do this. But really, the question that I want to begin thinking about this morning is, can you really trust the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? Um, very rarely get on Facebook. When I was on Facebook, and a friend of mine who usually has some very interesting article posts, he posted something, so I thought I would read it, and I was completely disappointed. The article was from Newsweek magazine. Notice it says double issue. It's a very long article on the Bible. And notice the heading, so misunderstood, it's a sin. Not a very provocative title. And here the author was saying, you know, he had two main points. His first main point was atheists don't know the Bible, obviously, but more alarming than that, Christians don't know the Bible. And then his second main point was Christians pick and choose what they want to emphasize out of the Bible. And I'll, there's a lot of truth in the second point. That's a sermon for another day. Let's, let's leave that aside. But is there an ignorance in our own lives, of the word of God, which is supposed to transform us. Is it possible that, you know, we think we know the word of God, but really, we don't know the word of God? I believe there's a lot of truth to that. For certainly, all of us, we need to know the word of God better, amen? We need a deeper experience in in understanding the word of God. Um, So I'd like to do something this morning and explore some difficulties with the word of God. Because this author was very antagonistic. Don't bother. Well, you can if you want to. I wouldn't recommend reading the article. It was really painful. Um, I stopped partway through. It really wasn't worth your, wouldn't be worth your time. But he raised some questions. Some of them very superficial. Some of them a bit more pointed. What I'd like to do is, in a warm, safe environment this morning is explore some of the questions about the Word of God. Is it really reliable? Can we really trust it? And I'd like to say this in the beginning, that one of the reasons I think that there is an ignorance in the Word of God in churches, in Christianity today, is because there has been a shift in preaching over generations. People used to preach content-heavy sermons. And we're not a content-heavy generation. And sermons, it's a good thing and a bad thing, but sermons have moved toward, and this is a good thing, being much more applicable, maybe more relational, maybe 
directly helpful, that's a good thing. It's a bad thing if that is so much the point that we're not learning what the Word of God says and that there's no real thinking about the Word of God. So let's try to remedy that a little bit this morning. And there's a couple of things that came out in the, um, the article. First of all, the person said, if the Bible is inspired, there would be no contradictions, errors, or discrepancies in the Bible. There are contradictions, errors, or discrepancies in the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is not reliable. This is the person's main thought. If it's inspired, if it comes from God, which we would suggest or argue that it does, then their view would be there would be no contradictions, errors, or discrepancies, because there are, and we'll look at some of them this morning, you cannot trust the Bible, his point. Another point the author made was this. Because we do not have the original writings of Scripture, none of us has the original book of Isaiah or the original book of Daniel or the original book of Matthew. Uh, This is true. We don't have these original writings. And we find differences in the copies that we do have. Therefore, the Bible is not reliable. Since we don't have the originals, and the copies don't match up 100%, therefore, the Bible's not reliable. And look at that at a different day. But if you were to encounter somebody who brought this out, how would you respond? Somebody says, you know, you really can't trust the Bible. It's not reliable. There are discrepancies. And if it's inspired, there shouldn't be. How would you respond? Well, what, would you, what should your first response be? What would I recommend your first response be? Those of you that know me a little bit. What? Yeah, there would be a question, right? And the question would be, you know, what do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? Uh, very good things. When someone throws something at you, rather than being defensive, ask a couple of questions in response. What do you mean that there are discrepancies in the Bible or mistakes in the Bible? And how did you come to that conclusion? Did you do some research yourself? So let's examine this, okay, together. And uh, let's look at some apparent discrepancies. And I say apparent. Some of these are very easy to explain if you're willing to look at them with a broader mindset. So let's look at some of them. Did Jesus come to bring peace or did he not? Well, Luke chapter 2 in verse 14. Someone read that for us. Luke 2 verse 14 and someone else get Matthew 10, 34. Which one do you have? Luke? Would you read that for us? Luke 2, 14. Okay, so here's an announcement in the angel. Peace, goodwill toward men. But Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34... What does he say? Okay, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Now, there's an obvious discrepancy, or is there? Well, it kind of looks on the surface as a discrepancy, but is there an underlying harmony? One's an announcement of what God's going to do. I'm bringing peace. I'm going to remove enmity between the human and between God. What is Jesus meaning when he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword? Say it again. 
It's going to be a messy process. People are going to resist, aren't they? There's going to be a reaction. So not an overwhelming discrepancy. Um, some are a bit superficial. Some really take more thought. The creation accounts. Genesis 1. Let's turn back to Genesis. This might be a bit more perplexing for us. Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to read the entire chapter. But Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning God, and then it unfolds the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And those of us who might be familiar with the scriptures, remember God said on the first day, let there be light, and there was light. And he, then he makes a separation between the waters and the darkness, and, and the waters and the dry land, and the light and the darkness. And the story in Genesis chapter 1 continues, pardon me, with um, the lights in the firmament in verse 14, in verse 20, there's the waters and the living creatures in the waters. Let's look in verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth, what? Living creatures. Pardon me, keep losing it. Living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, of after their kind, and then it and continues. And then in verse 26, as the capstone of creation, who is created at the apex? Man and woman. Creation story, chapter 1. Let's turn to chapter 2, because there's a... Um, what's the word I want to use? A different rendering in chapter 2. So in chapter 2... Uh, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Verse 5. No shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet been sprouted. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Verse 7. We find the creation of man. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And then in verse 8. God places man in the garden. Verse 9 creates the trees. Um, let's jump down to verse... Let's see, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed... What? What? every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called them, that was their name. Then it goes on with the first man naming the animals. What's the discrepancy here? The order is very different. In chapter 1 of Genesis, the order moves forward from separation, these different days, creation, and then man is created last. In chapter 2, you just read it, it looks like what happens. Who is created first? Man. And then you have the beasts of the field being created as well. So how would you explain that? Chapter 2 is a commentary on chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a summary. This is the big picture. Now I'm giving you some details. 
and I'm stressing things. You know, it's interesting. It's certainly true that there's an order difference here, or it appears to be. It doesn't actually say that the animals were created after man. But the way the story is told could lead you to think that way if you weren't thinking big picture. Now, it's interesting to me that individuals like the author of the article, they bring these things out like this is some great hidden secret that nobody knew about for thousands of years. Do you think that when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, or if somebody didn't believe Moses wrote it, whoever wrote it, that they really didn't realize what they were doing and just made that kind of sloppy mistake? I mean, freshman class 101, you would get in trouble, right? Obviously, the author of the book is thinking of something. And so then rather just automatically think, oh, here's a, here's a discrepancy. This is unreliable. We could think, is there an underlying point or harmony here? Let's, let's continue. Um, apparent discrepancies. Did Jesus ascend from Bethany when he went to heaven, or did he ascend from the Mount of Olives? Well, in Luke 24, 50 to 51, it tells us that Jesus ascended from Bethany. In Acts 1, verse 9, it tells us that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. Looks like a major discrepancy and contradiction. What should give us pause immediately? Who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts? The same author wrote both of them. Very clear by the introductions to both books. If you read them carefully, he wrote both of them. So, you know, would he be that careless, or is there another explanation? Somebody read for us Mark 11 in verse 1. Mark 11 in verse 1. Oh. So, what two physical places are, like, right next to each other? Bethany and the Mount of Olives. And so because Luke in one place says Bethany, in the next place he says Mount of Olives, there's really not a discrepancy. Now let's not be overly confident and think that we can explain every question about the Bible in such a clear, easy manner quickly. There are some things that we wrestle with, and there would be some things that perhaps we can't understand. Um, let's look at a couple here. What's the sequence of the temptations in the wilderness? So Jesus goes into the wilderness, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. What is the sequence with which Jesus is tempted? Anybody remember that? Okay, first one is turn the stones into bread. Everybody agree with that? Yes or no? What's the second temptation? I love it. What is, what's the second temptation? Two different people disagreeing. It's good. It depends. What's the second temptation? Throw yourself down from the temple? Or? Or worship me. Which one? Can you prove that to me? Of course you can. You go to the book of Matthew. That's Matthew's account. Stones of bread, and then the temple, and then bow down and worship. And then at the end of bowing down to worship, 
Satan leaves. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, the order is different. In Luke, chapter 4, the last two temptations are reversed. Every, all Matthew and Luke agree that the stones turning into bread is the first temptation. So we're clear on that one. The question is, what is the second temptation? And the answer to the, that question would be, it depends who you're reading. Matthew says this. Luke says that. Now, this becomes a little bit more uncomfortable for us. Why? Because Matthew and Luke, as we're reading through them, in our minds we're thinking they're telling a story in a very 21st century narrative way or the way a reporter might, and this happened and this happened and this happened. And so now we have something where it couldn't have happened both ways. One of them is what? Wrong. Hmm. One of them is wrong, and one of them is right. Or can they both be right? Or is this just a hopeless contradiction and error, and it just shows you can't trust the scriptures? Okay, so maybe there's not a kind of the verbal qualifiers there. It's possible. Is it possible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling the true story about Jesus, but they're telling it in their own way for their own purposes? You see, sometimes we think inspiration means things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Gospels or any of the, the, gospel, the book of Acts either are um, meet an artificial level of accuracy that you might have to do for a doctoral dissertation or something. Or, you know, it's, the Bible writers are telling the story about Jesus. They're telling a true story about Jesus. And they may put different things in different orders for, for their own purposes. Is that a discrepancy? Or is that a stylistic difference of emphasis? That's a question that we kind of need to think about. Here's, let me give you a, something to think about. You know, in the Bible are, are figures of speech. So, for example, if I say, you know, I saw a beautiful sunset the other day, am I being truthful or am I lying? Well, given that it was a beautiful sunset. Okay, it was my opinion because I thought it was beautiful. Let's just say I was watching the sunset the other day, and I really happened to be. Is that a true statement or a false statement? False in what sense? The sun doesn't set. Thank you. The sun doesn't set. What happens? The earth rotates. But we use expressions like that all the time. And we grant people the freedom to use expressions like that. And when we read the scriptures, we need to realize that Bible writers at time use expressions. And whether it meets a certain level of scientific accuracy is really not the point. The Bible writers are trying to communicate to us the true story of what God is doing in this world. And they communicate it in language that is human. That, isn't that a wonderful thing? I really think about that for a moment. That, that God communicates to us in language we can understand. And he did that in its fullest in the incarnation. Man, that's just a really amazing thought. Sorry, it's not part of the sermon, but just think about it with me for a moment to really think that God entered in to a certain point in history 
That is phenomenal. God communicates to us. And in inspiration, you have this blend, this uniting of the divine, God's activity, and the human, and God communicates to humanity in a way humanity can understand. And he gives a big picture, Genesis 1, then he gives some more details, Genesis 2. And Luke tells his story because he wants to emphasize something, and Matthew tells his story, he wants to emphasize something else. Um, What was written over Jesus' head? You might want to jot these down. Anybody know off the top of your head? We're not going to look at all those verses this morning, but... Okay, what did it say? Is this, this was the crime. What, what did the sign say? Any guesses? King of the Jews? Anybody else? This is the King of the Jews? How about Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews? This is Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Which one was it? Well, the four Gospels describe the sign in four different ways. One simply says, king of the Jews. One says, this is the king of the Jews. One says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. One says, the, Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Four different ways, really. Is that a contradiction or an explanation. Each Bible writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they're talking about the death of Jesus, they're emphasizing a particular point. And they stress what they want to on the title. If I simply say it said the king of the Jews, and it really said this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, am I wrong? Or am I just being succinct? Or not detail-focused? So here's, you know, different points in Scripture. And as we read carefully through Scripture, obviously we're going to come across these. And rather than begin to think the Bible is unreliable, we need to be think, what is the underlying harmony here? What is this? What is the Bible writer? What's Mark trying to emphasize in the way he tells me the story of Jesus? What's Matthew emphasizing in the way he tells me the story of Jesus? One of our dangers is we, we want to harmonize everything. And so when I asked you, what was the order of temptations, most of us have a certain order in mind because that's the way we've heard it. We hardly ever hear Luke's story. And that's just because of familiarity. And rather than harmonize them, force them into a box, let's ask the question, what is the Bible writer trying to tell me about the story of Jesus? Again, as we talked a little bit about inspiration, inspiration uses approximation sometimes. I think Luke says there are about 12 men in a room. Um, you know, there are about 100 people on the ship. Approximation. Bible writers' inspiration uses metaphors, uh, uses figures of speech. But one thing's very clear as we think about inspiration. There's a divine side and a human side. And just like in the life of Christ, the divine and the human were blended together, mysteriously blended. So in the forming of the scriptures, the word of God, the divine element is there and the human element working together. The end result is a book that is reliable 
And more than reliable, it's life-changing. And that's the real point, is that the word is life-changing. And the question for us is, are we going to, this year, really think about my time with the word of God? Am I going to think of my schedule in terms of who do I want to become? I want to be like Jesus. I want to memorize scripture. I want to have a more vibrant prayer life. I want to sense the presence of God more in my life. How am I going to live in such a way that I put myself in the best situation for that to occur? Let's go back to our uh, scripture. Let's go back to our text, 1 Peter chapter 1. And I appreciate Peter's emphasis here because the way to show my growth is in one word, and that's love. You've, since you have in obedience to the truth, you're, there's the truth, there's the knowledge part, there's the familiarity with the word of God, but there's an obedience to it, there's, there's a surrender to it, there's a allowing it to form and change us, there's a purification of our life, for the aim is an unhypocritical love of the brethren. So think of the person on the other side of the church that you don't speak to and realize that God is calling you to love that person. Think of the young person that gets on your nerves by their attitude. God is calling you to love that person. Think of the older person that is so out of touch and realize God is calling you to love that person. Fervently love. Now, the reality is we're incapable of producing that love. What needs to take place is that Christ needs to dwell in our hearts. There needs to be a transformation we, we need to realize, as the text goes on to say, all flesh is like grass. That's you and that's me. We're here for a moment. Our strength is, is weakness. Our intelligence is stupidity. We are like grass. But the word of God endures forever. And it will do what God wants it to do as we surrender, as we cooperate, as we expose ourselves, and as we think, this isn't just something to read, this is something to live. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, excuse me, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that you so excuse me so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if indeed you have tasted the kindness of the lord if your life has really been touched continue to grow continue to desire the sincere milk of the word so that your life can be transformed what an opportunity for each one of us awaits us We've got a whole nother year ahead of us praise the lord Better than the other alternative, right? We have a whole year ahead of us. 
Will we live in such a way, will we schedule our life in such a way that we're putting around ourselves, we're giving ourselves the best opportunity, the best chances, the, the greatest occasions to be molded by God's spirit and to become like him. It's an interesting quotation from a series of articles written in 1888. It says, why then is there manifested in the church so great a lack of love, of tender pity and loving forbearance? Don't you just wish that that was your, everybody said, boy, that person is forbearing and kind and pitiful. It is because Christ, not pitiful in that sense, full of pity, sorry, It is because Christ is not constantly brought before the people. What's the problem? We don't see Jesus. In the word, in our sermons, in our life, Christ constantly needs to be uplifted. And when he is uplifted, there's a transformation that takes place within. And the adversary would be well pleased to get us thinking on all sorts of other things and our eyes off of Christ. It is because Christ is not constantly brought before the people. His attributes of character are not brought into the practical life. (coughs) Pardon me. Men and women are not eating of the bread that comes down from heaven. Every day, God's given us a feast, offering to us a feast of his word, of his presence, of his spirit. Will you feast on his word? Will you make Christ the focus of your life and my life, that his attributes can be brought into our practical life. Pray, Lord, I pray that as we go this afternoon, that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. Who do I really not show my love to? Who do I need to intentionally think? How can I minister to this person? As uncomfortable as it might be sometimes, how can I show practical love through the word of God dwelling in me. Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus is calling us, that your spirit is calling us, that you are calling us to a closer experience with you. Father, we're grateful that all flesh is is as grass and that we have no power within ourselves, but we're also grateful there is power in the word of God to transform us, to make us right, to remold us into your image, and to keep that image growing and shining day by day. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for each one of us, that we'd open our hearts to that tremendous love and that the matchless terms of Jesus would draw us in full surrender to him. In his name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.